So we are about to embark on a series on two books of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah. And as we started talking about this series as a, a staff team, we realized that most of us had a really hard time wrapping our minds around these two books. Most of us aren't familiar with the structure of the books. Most of us don't know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And if that's you, you're the same as many of us. This is a, a really hard book to wrap your mind around. Books of Ezra and Nehemiah are books that Jesus never mentioned. The apostles never refer to them. Chances are you've never heard a series on Ezra or Nehemiah unless it was related to a building project or the importance of Bible study in church from Ezra chapter nine. That would be my guess. And yet the irony, as we did a deep dive into these books these last few months, is that those would be the last two topics you would ever want to hear from Ezra and Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah is not a story about a building project gone right, it's a story about everything going wrong. So we figured, you know what, let's take some time and help us wrap our minds a little bit about these books. Okay, first of all, one thing that's very important to understand is that Ezra and Nehemiah are actually not two books, they're one. It wasn't until the medieval period, so just a few hundred years ago, that churches first separated Ezra and Nehemiah into Ezra and Nehemiah. Throughout the history of the church, in the time of Jesus, in the Old Testament times, Ezra and Nehemiah was always understood as one story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so we're gonna study them as one book. Second thing we need to understand to kind of just take some of the, the scariness out of these books is that these books were not written to be in chronological order. If you read them and try to put a like dictionary or a timeline next to them, you're gonna be jumping all over the map. These books or this double book is written in thematic order. The author of Ezra and Nehemiah was someone who was compiling these stories from decades of time, putting them all together and forming them in a way so that we can get the major themes out of this book. So don't read it like it's a start to finish timeline. We've gotta read it in the themes. The context of Ezra and Nehemiah is post-exile Israel. There was a time in Israel's history when they were captured. The Southern Kingdom was captured. The Northern Kingdom was captured. They were moved into Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. And yet the prophets started to emerge during this time saying that after the captivity, after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, God would free them from this captivity and he would usher in a new age. There's all this writing that builds up this beautiful future where God's people would return to Jerusalem, return to the Holy Land. God would raise up a new generation of priests. He would replace the hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. He would rebuild the temple. And as you start to read Ezra and Nehemiah over and over again, you look at this context and you realize that this is a story of that almost happening but not happening. Over and over again, the Messiah is put up on this platter and then he doesn't come. Ezra and Nehemiah is a tragic story. And we're gonna embark on this series and talk through every one of these concepts as we go along. This is just a primer for you to wrap your mind around where we're going so that as you read it, and I would encourage you to read it at home, that, that, that you will know the place you are in the story and you'll know what you're supposed to get out of this book and what you're not supposed to get out of this book and you will walk away from these books drawn to Jesus Christ, who is the true fulfillment of all the messianic promises of God. We're so excited to go through these books with you. We'll see you on Sunday. 
You got it? Yeah, perfect. You got it. That, you don't have to memorize that video. Uh, it's on social media. You can watch it a hundred times. Or better yet, if you jump on the Three Crosses app, click on today's message and scroll down to the bottom, you'll see that there are some suggested resources. And one of the things that was most helpful for us as we put this series together was a four-hour lecture, now don't fall asleep yet, a four-hour lecture by Tim Mackey, who runs the Bible Project, on Ezra and Nehemiah. And so if you geek out on stuff like that, there's four hours of that, and he talks slower than me, that you should check out sometime over the midst of this series. Just go on Google if you don't want to go on Three Crosses app and search for Tim, Mackey, Ezra, Nehemiah. Look for the four-hour video on YouTube, and you get to pretend like you're a seminary student for half a day. It's fascinating study on an amazing set of books that we're going to devote our time to studying over the next six weeks. I know it's a lot. I feel like I just introduced myself. I'm like ready to be done because I just turned a four-minute sermon by myself. But we are going to dive in today with Ezra chapter 1. We're going to look at the first four verses of Ezra 1. So if you have your Bibles, your app, or whatever, you can open up to Ezra chapter 1. And there is one word. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon today, if you're zoning in and out, if you are tired, whatever it is, one word that I want to sear into your mind as you look at the text of Ezra and Nehemiah this week and as we talk about these concepts today, this is a word that I feel like we should be praying about, that we should be leaning into, we should be opening our eyes to its reality. It's a word that I feel like best describes what God is trying to do in Ezra, Nehemiah. And if you have a pencil, write this word down. The word is revival, revival. Revival, from the word revive, to bring life again, to bring something back to life that was dead, or to breathe new life, renewed life, a new season of life into something that is dormant or, or feels like it's stale or broken. Now, I believe we're in a season where many of us desperately desire or need a revival from the Lord. And we're going to study this book through the lens of God's desire to bring revival into our lives. I met with our board last week, and we were talking about where the church is and where we're going and kind of the exciting vision that God has for us into the future, where we've been. And I made the comment along the way as we were having this conversation that in some ways it feels to me like our church is this giant jumbo jet that we're trying to get off the runway in the post-COVID season. Right? It's like the runway clears, the CDC gives us the green light, and we start like pushing up the throttle or whatever it's called on an airplane, right, and trucking down the runway. And yet it feels like every time we are about to get off the ground, we get a note from the control, control tower like, hey, there's geese in the air, <laughs> or you're out of gas, or hey, just so you know, someone's shooting at the airplane, or whatever, right? whatever it is. It feels like we keep almost getting off the ground and then dropping back down again. It feels like a season where we just want to get into the air, but it's been hard to get off the ground. I don't know if you've experienced this in your own life. I've experienced this in our church this week. I don't know if you heard about this, but we had an exposure to COVID at our high school camp two weeks ago. 
You know, I was like so proud of our student ministry staff. They did so much work to get out all the information and get everyone tested, all of the details to get camp to be a safe place. Hume Lake does an amazing job making camp a safe place. But then I think it was Monday or Tuesday, a couple kids from another church started to get in the sniffles or something. So they go to the infirmary. First thing the infirmary does is like rapid test them and boom, COVID. Hume springs into action, sends the kids home, actually sends their entire cabins home and sends a note out to everyone like, just so you know, your kid may have come across paths with one of the kids who had COVID the first couple days of camp. And sure enough, we found out last week that a few of our kids must have come into contact with some of the kids who had COVID at camp because we started getting positive test results within our own student ministries community. And so, so we're praying for these kids who are getting COVID. We're praying that the spread is stopped. Our hearts are broken because it was a great week of camp. We don't want to put a damper on it. But then we start looking around. Remember we celebrated right before camp just how integrated our young adults and students are into the body life of our church. We started realizing that we just had 200 kids exposed to COVID and volunteers and staff. And so we need to quarantine those 200 people who may have had exposure, which meant We can't pull off kids' ministry for the next two weeks. We can't pull off student ministries for the next two weeks. Even like our music director and all of our band that normally is putting on, we were supposed to have a worship night last Friday. We had to pull the plug last minute, right? So people are coming up, where's the worship night? Hey, they just realized they had to quarantine, right? And so last minute, all these things that are going up and to the right, we had to say, hey, let's ground these planes for another 14 days. And we had to cancel our kids' camp. They're supposed to leave today for kids' camp. And the exposure and all that, we just had to pull the plug. And so I had to go and tell our uh, eight-year-old that his camp wasn't happening. After all of his brothers got to go to camp, his sisters got to go to camp, it was finally his week of camp. And I'm like, buddy, I've got terrible news. Camp is canceled. I'm like, how do you feel? He's like, I feel really sad. Like, how do you think your friends are gonna feel? He had like rallied up all his friends to go to camp. He's like, I think they're gonna be really sad. And then he came downstairs with all of these candy and supplies he had bought to give his friends at camp. And he's like, what am I supposed to do with this stuff? I'm like, well, you could eat it while we quarantine together. (laughs) It's a failure. It's a season where I sense this tension, right? It feels like on one hand, it feels like God is is breathing life into us again. And God is starting to bring folks to church that have never been to church before, starting to bring folks back who've been gone for a long time, starting to get ministries going, and some exciting things are happening if you've connected in some of our different ministries, like our women's ministry thing tomorrow night, or our community life thing last Sunday, or the vision that's being birthed for the future we talked about a few weeks ago. We are so excited, like God has these plans for us. It's like COVID has other plans for us. Right? And the world we live in has these other plans for us. And it feels like every time life starts to emerge, death reemerges again. And, and so I've had this longing for the last several months that God would bring forth a season of revival, of revitalizing us as individuals of revitalizing us as a ministry, of revitalizing us as a missionary force in our world, of bringing a a new season of spiritual vitality to our region in the East Bay and around the world. I've been sensing that the next season ahead of us is a season where the Spirit has great plans to do great 
work, but I think one of the things we've learned in the last year is that if God is going to do a great work, God is going to have to be the one who does the great work. Because when it comes to us, whether it's development in your own life or things that you've had ideas for for your family or your workplace or whatever, I think a lot of times what we've noticed is, is one of the big themes of this book, which is that God has plans and all we can tend to do is mess those plans up. Right? And you might be wondering, kind of the major question, why in the world are we studying Ezra and Nehemiah to prepare ourselves for revival? This, like I said, is a story of a revival that didn't happen. We'll talk about this over the next six weeks. We get this glimpse of something beautiful in Ezra 1, 1 through 4, and then we see Zerubbabel leading the charge to rebuild the altar of God, and it's this amazing moment that almost happens, and then it gets real weird. We'll talk about that next week. Then Ezra feels commissioned to go and lay the foundations of the temple, and it feels like another groundswell of revival amongst God's people, and it starts coming together, and then they have this worship service, and people are laughing and praising and crying, it's awkward, they start making decisions, they seem weird, and it all starts falling apart. Nehemiah gets commissioned to go and build the walls of the city. He has this burden from the Lord, and he has opposition, and he has opposition, and he fights through the opposition, and finally he finishes the project. They have this amazing revival service in Nehemiah chapter 9 through chapter 12, and then no sooner does it start then it all falls apart, right? By the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is literally pulling people's hair out, beating them up, and crying out to God, why have you put me in this position? It's like this revival that keeps almost getting off the ground, but it doesn't. Nehemiah and Ezra are books where we see that God is trying to birth something amazing but well-intentioned humans keep getting in his way. And the reason that we're gonna study Ezra and Nehemiah as a handbook on revival, almost a handbook of what not to do, is because I think sometimes one of the biggest things that's getting in the way of the movement that God wants to do in your life and the movement that God wants to do in our region and in our church is us. Have you ever had a season where it seems like God was starting to do something in your life, but then you fell into sin and it all kind of fell apart? Or God was starting to give you a vision for something and you got scared and the opportunity passed? Or God was stirring in your heart to take on this new endeavor, you were so excited about it, but then it became real and you couldn't get people rallied around it, it all just fell apart. If you've ever had a season like that, chances are you've sensed that the spirit was willing, but your flesh was weak. And so we're gonna study these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, these next few weeks to equip ourselves for the Spirit's work in this next season by learning how we can get out of God's way and allow him to do the work that he wants to do in our lives and in our church and in our world. So today, as we dive in, four verses, all we're gonna do is, is look at the hope that's starting to come kind of starting to sense how the Spirit brings forth revival in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we're going to read together Ezra 1, 1 through 4. These are four verses that are mirrored very closely in three different stories. Here in the Zerubbabel story, next in the Ezra story, then in the Nehemiah story. And so we're going to look at this first one as a pattern. This is Ezra 1, 1. Ezra tells us that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, 
The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. This is four verses that may not spark joy and exaltation and worship in your life. But for the folks who were reading this in the time of Ezra, these four verses would have sparked an intense amount of excitement about the vision God had for their future. Tim Mackey, who wrote that Bible Project four-hour lecture that I talked about earlier, he described these four verses as having a strong, he said the messianic packet of hope is strong in these four verses, that there was something about the words of these verses that unlocked in the minds of their people that something amazing was about to happen. Now, if you want to write things down today, here's something you could write down about revival. Number one, revival is often sparked with a glimpse of hope. I want you to think back to a time in your life when it felt like things were just dead. Maybe emotionally you were going through a hard time, or maybe at work you were just struggling. Maybe it was yesterday, right? Maybe your family was going through it. Maybe you didn't have any desire to study the scriptures or go to church. Maybe you had a season of your life where you were wandering away from the Lord. And for a long, long time, you were in this place of malaise or discouragement or depression or whatever it was, right? Today, you're out of it, but back then, it just felt like there was no way out of it. Chances are, if you're thinking about a time in your life for real that that happened, it was a season of your life that was really hard, and to come out of it, it wasn't like one day you just woke up and everything was better, Right? You weren't like depressed, having a hard time getting out of bed, then one day you just woke up and it's like the birds were singing, you were excited again, everything was normal again. Chances are it was a long road to recovery. And chances are if you look back at the beginning of that long road to recovery, that long road to recovery started with a glimpse of hope. Right? You were depressed, you were discouraged, you didn't want to leave your house. And one day you woke up and you thought, you know what, I kind of want a latte right? Not revolutionary, right? But, but just a, a thought in your mind that drove you to leave your house for the first time in weeks, maybe, and go to Starbucks, right? And if you're a normal stage of life right now where things are great, going to Starbucks isn't revolutionary, right? But after being stuck in your house for weeks and weeks and too depressed to leave, leaving to buy coffee with milk in it is a life-changing turn of events. It's this glimpse of hope. You're stuck in your job. You hate your job. You just don't know what you want to do next. You feel like, how much longer till I can retire? A hundred years? Eighty years, right? And you feel like every day you just hate this thing that you're doing. Until one day, an email comes across your computer or something pops up on Indeed when you're supposed to be working, right? And and it's this opportunity that actually kind of piques your interest a little bit to do something else. And that one little email or that one little thing that you were reading sparked a desire in you to change your circumstances and led to a place where you were in a place that you liked better, hopefully, right? What I'm trying to say is that when God breathes new life into us in seasons of our lives, 
A lot of times it starts with just a small glimpse, a glimmer of hope. Now think about when you first became a Christian. It's not like you became a super Christian overnight, right? That took a long time for you to finally, now you're a super Christian, right? But the first time you heard the gospel, maybe there was just this glimpse of something in it that, that sounded intriguing to you. I, I remember for me, the first time I came to church, I was in high school and I came to our youth group here and, and I remember the first glimpse of hope I had was I looked around and I saw all these youth group kids and something seemed different about them. I didn't believe their message yet. I wasn't a Christian yet. I didn't understand anything about the Bible yet but I just saw something that drew me in and this little spark of life and excitement was a spark that God later fanned into flames. And these first four verses of Ezra are a spark that when the people in, in Ezra's day would have heard them, it would have ignited something in them. This is happening. This season we've been waiting for is finally happening. Now, they had been in captivity, like I said on the video, for 50 years at this point. And yet God had told them before they went into captivity that someday the captivity would be over. Right? It says in verse 1, it refers to the words of Jeremiah. These are the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 25. It says in verse 11 that when Israel is captured by the Babylonians, it says this whole country will become a desolate wasteland. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord. And I will make it desolate forever. In chapter 29, you've probably heard this before. This is where it was originally written, Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11. He says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. For 50 years, the people have been waiting for a glimpse of hope that the end of captivity was coming, waiting for a glimpse of hope that they would return to the promised land, waiting for fulfillment that God would bring revival. Remember in Ezekiel, there's that vision of the dry bones that God says, I'm going to put flesh and blood back on your dry bones again. Someday I will replace your hearts of stone with the heart of flesh. Someday I'll have a new covenant with you. Someday my Messiah will come and usher you into an age that will be everlasting someday you will reign from your holy city and my kingdom will establish over the entire earth. Someday this captivity will be over. Someday this season will end and I will restore your fortunes again. Ezra chapter one, verses one through four is a glimpse that the day they were longing for is coming. And there's a couple clues that we can see in Ezra chapter one that the day they had been longing for is coming. The first is in verse two. Cyrus says, the Lord, he names Yahweh, the God of the covenant people of God, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. 
Now Cyrus, who wrote this edict, he wrote it down, he made it formal, he put it on paper. He was not a worshiper of our God. Most scholars believe that if he aligned most with one God, it was an ancient God named Marduk, not Yahweh. Cyrus was not a believer, not a covenant person, not a pro-Jewish person in that time. He was just a king. He was probably making a political move, but at the same time, this pagan king opens his mouth and says, here's what I wanna do. I wanna start to restore the fortunes of Israel. You know, this is the first time in the Old Testament that God uses intentionally a king, a ruler, a pagan person to restore the fortunes of his people, right? We we think of characters like Pharaoh in the Exodus. We think of characters like the king of Assyria, the king of Babylon, who are used as tools of God to punish God's people for their sin. But now the script is starting to flip. Now God is starting to use even these pagan rulers and empires to restore his people. And so as Cyrus says, I want to help Israel, the people would have been sparked with a bit of of hope. The second thing that Cyrus says that would spark hope for them is in verse three. He says, any of God's people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord. Now this is a a picture that the fortunes of Israel are being restored. This idea of the temple being the centerpiece of worship, the temple representing the heart of the Jewish religion, the temple being the place where God himself dwelt with the people of Israel. And Cyrus is saying anyone who feels compelled can go and put religious life back where it needs to go again. It's a spark of hope. And finally, in in verse four, he says, in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. You see this picture here in the beginning of Ezra. We see it again a couple times in these two books where, where what's happening looks a lot like Moses and the Exodus. Remember the Moses story where Moses keeps going to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no, no, no. But finally God changes the heart of this Egyptian ruler. And Pharaoh says, fine, right? Because of all the plagues, fine, you can go. And he commissions all the people of Israel to go out into the desert and pursue the promised land. And as they go, all of the Egyptian folks come out and start showering them with gold and jewelry and gifts. Remember this? And as they're going, they're taking the plunder from Egypt through the Red Sea into the most iconic moment in Old Testament history. It's a beautiful reminder of the way that God redeems us and saves us from our sin and our bondage. And in Ezra chapter one, we hear Cyrus giving a very similar message. He says, it's time for you to go. You can leave this land of captivity with my blessing. You can go back and restore the fortunes of Israel, go back to the promised land, and anyone who doesn't feel compelled to go with you, why don't you give them silver and gold and free will offerings to help with this project? And so you see this picture of all of God's people raising up to go back home and restore the fortunes of Israel again. It's a messianic packet of hope. It's a glimpse of revival. I love that even in here, we we get a sense that God is stirring in the hearts of different members of the faith community differently. 
Right? You've got men like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah that God is raising up to be a leader in this charge. Zerubbabel leading this first wave of exiles. Ezra coming back to restore worship to God's people. Nehemiah wanting to come and build the wall and lead the charge. These leaders emerge. And then all these other people emerge. Some are priests that emerge. Some are helpers that are emerge. Some are builders, right? They all have these different roles and they all get called by God to take their hands up and work and play their part in restoring Israel again. And yet we see in these verses that some people are even called not to go. Cyrus says, hey, if anyone wasn't, doesn't want to go back, that's fine. But those people are called to give financially, to fund the project. Everyone is being worked on by the Lord to take part in this revival in a different way. And I said that revival is sparked often with a glimpse of hope. And I think when we see the individual contribution of these different players of Israel, we can add a little bit of a caveat on that. You can write this down, that revival is sparked in you when God bring, or starts, beginning, starts bringing a stirring into your heart. Revival is often sparked in you when God begins stirring your heart. I love that concept that anyone who feels compelled to go should, should go. The question I have for you along those lines is, is what is God stirring in your heart? You know, maybe it's a longing. Maybe this has been a hard 18 months for you and there's something that you're missing in life that's not working. You're missing the friends that you had before COVID. You're, you're missing the community that you had before, a glimpse of something beautiful. Maybe you're longing to gather back with a certain group of people again or longing to, to get back on God's mission he had for you again. You're longing to see God do a work in your life again. You're longing for your prayer life to be vibrant again. Maybe it starts with a loss, a longing, a lament. Maybe it starts with a stirring towards something new. I was talking to someone the other day who said, you know what, in this COVID season, God has really given me a burden for this specific community and I feel called to go and pursue, bringing life to them. Maybe there's a, a stirring in your heart to step into something new. Or maybe even as we're talking, you're realizing, man, I've drifted so far from the Lord. I just, I want that spirit of worship back. I want that desire to read my Bible back. I, I want to want to pray again. I want my soul to catch up with my attitude or my body in this season. I just, I long for things to get better again. What is God stirring in you? And revival is a work of the Spirit of God. And yet revival is a work where the Spirit of God comes and interacts with us in some way and starts using us in his purposes. And one of the, the most beautiful places I see this in the New Testament is in John chapter three. In John chapter three, a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And Nicodemus is evidently starting to sense this stirring from God that he wants to be a Christian, to follow Jesus. And he starts talking to Jesus and he's not really understanding it, comprehending it. And Jesus tells him, you need to be born again, right? Like revived. You need to have life come into you, into your soul, into your spirit. Nicodemus doesn't get it at all. He's like, how are you supposed to get born again? And, and then Jesus says this. He says, says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. No one knows where it comes from and no one knows where it's going. And so it, so it is with the Spirit. He says, you must be born again. And he gives them this glimpse of the Spirit's work, that the Spirit does what the Spirit does. Right? There's a chance the Spirit is working in your heart right now, drawing you to Jesus, that the Spirit is kind of giving you a desire to do something in your life. You can't control that. You can't fabricate that. You can't make that happen. But when God starts stirring something in you, it's an indication that he's starting to work 
And my prayer for us as we start to talk about revival is that that's a moment that would make you pay attention. That we wouldn't be quenching the spirit, but we would be fanning into flames what the spirit wants to do in us, in our community, in our midst. There's a chance that you already know what God is starting to kind of birth in you, the, the new desire, the new hope, the new life. What is it? You know, there's also a chance that you're like, I don't feel nothing. <laughs> I feel dead inside is what I feel. Honestly, I, I feel like my soul has fallen asleep. I feel like I have no desire for anything. I feel like I don't know where God is. I feel like I'm totally lost, right? And, and if that's you, I'm sure you're not alone today. This has been a season that it just feels like has numbed so much of who we are. You know, I read a news article this last week about uh, that was, I felt really bad for these people who were t- interviewed in the article. It was these different uh, food service people talking about what it's been like post-COVID to work in a restaurant. And they said, I, I don't know what's happened, but it feels like everyone has come back mad and mean. That people are coming back to our restaurants and they're demanding things. People are marching into the kitchen and yelling at the chef. People are demanding things faster, cheaper, better. Everyone's fuse is short. Everyone's lost their, they didn't even say manners. They said their ability to be human, it feels. What has happened to us as we've stuck in our homes for the last 18 months? And maybe that's you. You feel like, I've got no desire to pray. I've got no desire to follow God. I've got no desire for good things. I feel irritated all the time. Everything's a conspiracy, right? I'm just so mad. Everything sets me on edge, right? I've picked up these habits I don't like. That's a lot of people right now. And it's hard to be in a season where we're talking about God starting to soften your heart, and you're like, yeah, but that's not how I feel right. Now, I want to encourage you. I don't know if this encourages you, but I want to encourage you that as we look at the story of, of these folks, they had to wait for a long, long time, too, before God's Spirit did a work in them. And this was a story of men and women who had been in captivity at this point for 50 years. As I study the story of revival in Ezra, in the context of Ezra, here's three things that may encourage you, and maybe it's just a reality check for you if you're longing for God to do a work in your life. Number one, raiding for revival, it can seem like forever. And if you're in a season of depression, that season feels like forever. If you're a season of spiritual kind of wandering, that season probably has felt like a long, long time. If you feel lonely and isolated, you probably feel like you've been alone forever. If you're going through it, you're going through a divorce right now, chances are it feels like the longest season of your life. Waiting for God to breathe fresh life into you, it can feel like forever. At the same time, as I look at this text, I see something that's a little bit more hope-filled is that revival often comes sooner than you'd think. Right? God tells them, I don't know how encouraging this is going to be, but God tells them it's going to be 70 years before revival comes. And then 50 years in, he says, all right, let's start moving, right? And that's two decades earlier than they anticipated. God shows up even with a glimpse of hope, even earlier than they expected. And so part of the tension we need to realize in seasons of hardship is that those seasons feel so long. But the end, the end of that season is coming. God wants to bring revival even sooner than you'd think. And then just to bring you back to humility again, Waiting for revival can feel like forever. Revival often comes sooner than you think, but revival often takes longer than you thought. And we said in the, in the video before the service here, that, or the sermon here, that 
that this is a book that takes place over a couple of decades, right? That this revival that God is birthing is a long process. So kind of the flip side to, hey, God's not gonna change your life overnight most of the time is the fact that if God's gonna start doing a work in you now, it's gonna be a work that you're gonna be working with him on for the next season, for the foreseeable future. And if you've been away from the Lord for a long season, it's gonna take a while to kind of get your feet back under you again. If you're sensing that God's got vision for you in this next season, that's amazing, but it's probably gonna take longer than you'd think to get that vision fully fleshed out. I read a quote a couple years ago that said that we tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in one year and underestimate what we can accomplish in five years. I think a lot of times that's just how God works, is that sometimes the catalyst for our life change comes sooner than we'd think, but it takes longer than you'd think to come to pass. All that to say, if you're in a moment or a season or a season comes in your life where God gives you a glimpse of hope, steward that glimpse of hope. Lean into it. Ask God to start flanning it into flame. If he tells you to pray, go in and pray. If he tells you to go and talk to somebody, go and talk to somebody. Your life is not gonna change overnight, but God is gonna start slowly but surely building up your life again. If you're in a season where you feel like, I, I have no hope, <laughs> maybe this is a season where you need to turn to Christ for the first time in your life. Or maybe you've been watching online for a long time and kind of checking out church, but you're not a believer in Jesus and what God is starting to birth in you is this new desire you've never had before to become a follower of Christ. And you're wondering, I don't even know how to get there. You don't have to know how to get there. Just listen to his call and respond. Pray, ask him to forgive your sin. Ask him to give you a new life and slowly but surely this new life will be formed in you as you listen to the words of Christ and respond. If you're in a season right now where life is hard, look for movements of God and listen and lean in and pray and long. 50 years of prayer and longing before God responded. But then God responded in a magnificent, almost magical way. And kind of asked this question before, I'll, I'll ask it again as we close. Just to think about as you walk through the beginning stages of this series, what, what is the glimpse of hope that you're longing for? Maybe you don't have hope sparked in you right now, but what do you hope to hope for? What is the thing that you just wish God would breathe life into in your life, in your family, in our community, in our church, wherever you are walking and moving and living, what is the glimpse of hope that you are longing for? I'd encourage you to write that down, write it right next to the word revival on your paper, if that's all you wrote down, and start praying even today, tomorrow, the next day, that God starts giving you glimpses that he's moving in this area where you're longing for him to move. If you don't have anything for yourself, I'll give you a little glimpse into what I'm longing for, what our leadership is longing for in our church as we move into this next season. If you wanna write this stuff down, you can, or just I would love it if you would pray with us as we're longing for a season of revival to come. This is the glimpse of hope that for me, as I'm praying for our ministry, this is the glimpse of hope I'm longing for. I wrote down five things. We wrote down that we long to see men, women, and kids around our region turn to Christ. This is a season, when we talk about revival, I don't wanna like beat around the bush. I'm not primarily talking about you wanting to pray more, which is awesome, or you having a better work life, which is great. I'm primarily imagining thousands and thousands and thousands of people moving from death to life. 
People who don't know Christ, who are without God, without hope in this world, turning to Christ and finding forgiveness of sins, finding a revitalization of their soul, finding everlasting life. When we talk about revival, I'm talking about revival, like Jesus reviving from the dead, being dead and coming to life. Men and women and kids in our region finding Christ and receiving newness of life for the first time. That's what we're longing for. When we talk about a season of revival coming, we're not merely talking about a season of bringing people back to church. We're talking about a season where God mobilizes his church to reach tens of thousands of folks who don't know their right hand from their left, who are just wandering aimless in this world and they need Jesus Christ. That's what we long for. We're longing more than that. We're also longing to see tons of new folks come and gather with us. I had such a Privilege this morning, I, I made a comment in the first service. I said, there's probably some of you out there watching on the camera, and you've been connecting with church you've never been before, right? But you've been watching from afar. You're like, oh, this is what Christians do, right? And I'm not one of them, but we love that you're watching. That's awesome. I said, one of the things that we're longing for is that you guys who exist online would somehow exist in real life with us. Maybe you found Jesus over the midst of the pandemic and you're watching from home. Come and join us in this room, right? Maybe you're coming and joining us in this room after finding Jesus in the pandemic online. I met a couple after the first service who said, you know what, we've been watching on TV and we just came for our first time today. I said, man, I was just talking about how we're longing for folks like you to emerge into our midst. We've been praying for months that one of the beautiful effects of the pandemic was that we had a season to reach into the world and reach folks who are far from the Lord. We'd love to see them gathering with us, right? We're, we're not mostly excited about folks joining our church from other churches. We're mostly excited about folks joining our church because they met Jesus Christ and they're joining our family for the first time. We long for that. We long to see people connect in community and start to grow in their faith. It's been so encouraging these last couple months to see our community regathering things in the gym. We had one last Sunday a few weeks ago. We had one. We've got another one coming up at the end of the month. And we are, love seeing people connect in life-giving Christian community. We love discipleship happening. And we're excited about the fall. We're launching some new discipleship endeavors. We've got Three Crosses U starting up where we're gonna help people understand the basics, the foundational stuff of the faith, some deeper theological concepts. We're getting our communities up and going again. And again, we're not merely excited to get Christians doing Christian things again. What makes us excited is that we believe it is so powerful when believers in Jesus have community around them, they become a world-changing force. Now, there have been so many people in our church before the pandemic who didn't know anybody. Right? That was the hardest thing for us when the pandemic hit. We started making phone calls and we realized we have the phone number of like seven, 800 people in our church, but there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are part of this church that we have no idea who they are. They just show up on Sunday, they disappear. They show up at an event and they disappear. We don't know who they are and worse yet, they don't know anybody. And so think about how life-giving it's been for you to connect with believers in the midst of the pandemic and pray on Zoom or in homes, wherever you could. There's so many people who are part of our church who haven't talked to a Christian in 18 months. So we long to see men and women gather with us and grow in their faith. Fourth, we long to see people activate in their faith and start to go on mission with Jesus. And we were talking last week just how, about how beautiful it would be in this next season if God would start to raise up men and women in their workplaces and communities and homes and school to live on mission for Jesus Christ. 
Right, if we've got a ton of people working at Google, for example, or a ton of people working at Eden Hospital, for example, if God would raise up that community of people to reach the facility that he's planted them in 40 hours a week, that we would be a church on mission to reach lost people in the season to come. We long for that. And finally, we long to be a church that reveals God and restores hope to this lost and broken we don't want to be a church that's a weird haunted house up on the hill that people drive by on the freeway and think, I wonder what happens up there. We want to be a church that goes and impacts our community, that brings hope to the hopeless, brings meals to the homeless, that brings life to those who feel like their life is ebbing away, who brings prayer to the hospital, who brings community into your neighborhood, who brings worship into your spirit, into your family, into your community as you learn to follow Jesus in this place. This is what we're longing for. This is when we talk about revival. This is the revival that we are praying for. And so wherever you are with that, I just want to encourage you to start committing these things to the Lord in prayer. And if you need revival in your own life, bring that to the Lord today. If you're not a believer in Jesus and you're sensing God is calling you to himself, Return that call. I love what we saw in Jeremiah. It says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will return to you when you return to me. And if you've been drifting, if you've been lost and wandering, turn around and God will be right there waiting for you and start to seek him again and let him birth a fresh season of revival in your life. Now, I'm gonna close us in prayer right now to that effect, and then we're gonna sing, respond in song together, but starting next week, we're gonna talk a little bit about what revival looks like and how we can mess it up, and we're gonna learn how not to do that. So let me pray for us, and we'll continue in our worship.